Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. On today's episode of the show, I'm going to be presenting a series of interviews with the filmmakers and one of the stars of the new movie Godzilla vs. Kong. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and we have a very special episode for you today. Uh, first up, we managed to score an interview with Godzilla himself. Godzilla is notoriously hard to get a hold of, but we pulled some strings and made it happen, so I'm going to present that interview, and then we also spoke with Adam Wingard, who's the director of the new movie, as well as Max Borenstein, who is one of the writers. So without further ado, let's just jump right into our interview with Godzilla. Godzilla, welcome to Slash Film Daily. Let's start out with an easy question. What drew you to this material? Mm -hmm. Your co-star, Kong, has this reputation for being a little bit of a joker on set. Did he play any pranks while you guys were filming? <laughs> oh, that's great. I wish I'd been there to see that. Uh, now, Godzi, can I call you Godzi? Have you been binging anything recently? Have you maybe checked out the Snyder Cut yet? Oh, totally. I mean, I'm right there with you. Um, what do you make of your son, Godzuki, taking to social media to proclaim the start of, quote, Big Lizard Summer? Mm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. Um, I know that we're running short on time, and again, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Last question for you, though. What did you think about the 1998 Godzilla movie? Well, thank you for being so candid in your response there. That is very diplomatic of you. Um, we're out of time, so I'm sorry I could talk to you for, for hours, but uh, we got to go. So thank you very much, and we'll catch you next time. So now let's go to my chat with Adam Wingard, who directed this movie. He also directed films like You're Next and The Guest, uh, the Blair Witch film from a few years ago. And in our conversation, we talked about the very unique way that he ended up getting the directing job on this movie, that visually distinctive Neon City fight sequence in the film, the challenges of post-production, and more. So here is my chat with Adam Wingard. Hey, Adam, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for speaking with me. 
Um, so I want to start at the beginning. What was your pitch like to get the job directing this movie? Well, um, there was never actually a formal pitch, if you can imagine that, which sounds crazy for such a gigantic movie. But um, I, I think in a lot of ways, the the reason for that was is because um, we kind of have to travel back in time to uh, 2013 or so when um, Your Next was about to come out in theaters. And somehow uh, Peter Jackson um, had seen an early version of Your Next. I don't know how. And uh, and he was interested in me directing a sequel to his King Kong film. Uh, and it was just going to be called Skull Island. And Simon Barrett was going to write it. Mary Parent, who, you know, runs Legendary now um, and produced, you know, this movie uh, was on board with that. Uh, but this movie was set up at Universal and the King Kong writes um, somehow ended up at Warner Brothers. That movie went to the wayside and so did I. And uh, but so in a long roundabout way, I think that um, getting that um you know, vote of confidence from Peter Jackson is kind of stuck in um, Mary Parent's mind. And so I just really had a general meeting with her in, you know, in 2017. Um, I was, you know, it, it's really one of those things where, you know, as a filmmaker, you really have to take all those general meetings. And, um, and this is a big lesson to me, because I remember the day uh, of that meeting, I was in editorial working on my last film. And, um, I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, like two in the afternoon and my, uh, my assistant comes in and it's like, Oh yeah. Are you ready for that general meeting over at legendary in an hour? And I'm like, general meeting. I don't remember that. You know, we were really busy, you know, and I, and I was like, well, maybe we should just cancel it. You know, like we got so much work to do today. And I thought, well, you know what, I should just go do it. I haven't done a general meeting in a while because I've been so working so hard on this movie. And, so, uh, you know, it's really funny because I, I almost didn't go, but I did. And that's that's how we started talking about the fact that they were thinking about Godzilla versus Kong. And uh, and I raised my hand immediately and said, I'm very interested in that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about that then. In, you know, since you were brought in this sort of like unconventional way without like a, a traditional pitch, what kind of ideas did you have, you know, early on? Like what stage was the script in at the point when you came on board? Like how, how did that look? Yeah, that I mean, it's funny because I, I can't remember everything we talked about in that uh, general meeting. Um, the the main image that just popped in my head right away, just in the moment, really, was I was like, I, I remember telling Mary that I wanted to see Godzilla and King Kong in a futuristic neon city, you know, with synthwave music playing and Godzilla, you know, I wanted to see Godzilla chasing Kong around with his nuclear breath in this city. And, you know, I, I remember talking about that and that's obviously a main set piece that made it into the film and was probably the, one of the first things we developed visually for the movie. Um, the the only thing that existed of the film at that point was uh, Terry Rossio had run a writer's room uh, for the movie and he had a three three to five page um, little outline that uh, was very informal. I, I think that even on his outline, he didn't call it a treatment or something. He called it the Godzilla versus Kong proposal. And so he had a lot of the main set pieces and structure already there. So, and it, so it had all these great ideas and fortunately, you know, it, it had a uh, ending that took place in a, um, 
a big futuristic uh, city. And, um, and so I thought, well, that's perfect. You know, um, that's already syncing up. So that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, things like the ship battle, um, the details weren't in there, but the, the, the idea of that's where the, one of the action scenes was going to take place. And, and, and then the other sense of the film being sort of a journey into hollow earth. So all those things were kind of there. And, um, and uh, and then from from that point on, I I started meeting with Terry, and we would note card the whole movie. We we had we had like a legendary boardroom to ourselves, and we just had these cork boards, and we filled them up with every scene, and we just got into more and more detail about how I wanted to approach them as a director, and we came up with all these nuances, and then uh, and then he went off to write the script. So it was really nice to be kind of there. Um, working from the ground up on this thing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, you know, that final neon city, uh, that, that giant set piece. That's like one of my favorite moments of the movie. It's so visually distinctive. And I mean, I think that's one of the big complaints a lot of us have about modern blockbusters is that, you know, they have that sort of dull look, like, where's the fun? What is going on? And like, I love that, you know, it doesn't really make sense that every single skyscraper in Hong Kong is outfitted with a different colored neon, but it looks so freaking cool. And it's just, it's awesome. So talk, talk a little bit about your use of color here and what you're able to do with that in this movie. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, um, I, I think that we're, we're going to be moving into a new phase of blockbusters. And I, I think we have been over the last few years. I mean, you can even look at like, um, you know, I, maybe what really kicked it off was Avatar, you know, uh, but uh, but it took a while for every, everybody to catch up to it. But, you know, you look at like James Wan's Aquaman. I mean, that movie is the most psychedelic thing, you know, mm-hmm. I've seen in theaters in a while. And, you know, it's like it, I think we've gotten past the point where special effects movies need to be just so geared towards making you believe that the reality, you know, is real. It's like, okay, we believe that Godzilla is real because Gareth Edwards really brilliantly was able to give us the palate cleanser from the 98 Godzilla film. with mm-hmm. And, uh, and he really put it in reality that we can believe. And, but it's not one of those things that you want to just see over and over again. It's like, once you believe that Godzilla is real, where do you go from them? And it's kind of, and, and the MonsterVerse films have kind of followed this natural trajectory that the original Godzilla Showa era films did, which is, you know, the very first Godzilla movie for its time was very grounded and real and depressing and tragic. Um, and uh, and much a very much a disaster movie, and then they slowly got more psychedelic and trippy and cartoony and colorful as as time went on. And so I'm kind of like you know the destroy all monsters era of uh, I think that those type of films. If I had to like pick one, you mm-hmm. know, a film that's very colorful and even the way we approached the special effects was always. You know, we had a lot of discussions early on that I knew I wanted the fight scenes to be really high octane and very fast. You know, I wanted it to be kind of unpredictable as though you're just watching a street fight in an alley uh, in an alleyway. Um, And uh, the problem with that, though, is that normally when you're trying to show off scale of creatures that are, you know, 300 foot plus, um, the way to do that is to kind of artificially slow them down and give them a slow motion look and you get more Mm -hmm. of the size and the weight of them. Um, And so we did a lot of tests and what we realized is that if we scaled down or if we slowed down all the debris and the smoke and the broken glass falling from the sky, kept those at that same type of slow motion pace that you're seeing at, that gives you a feeling of the scale, but we kept the monsters for the most part, 
moving very quickly. And what I like about it is it, it, it gives almost a modern day stop motion feel, you know, it's like, it doesn't look a hundred percent real, but it looks really interesting in the same way that, the, uh, for instance, the original King Kong, excuse me, the original King Kong, um, those effects hold up nowadays, not because they look hyper-realistic or anything. They just look beautiful and interesting and, mm-hmm. you know, and they get the, the idea across. Yeah. Um, was there anything that surprised you when it came to the post-production process for this movie? Like any plot lines that you discovered that you didn't actually need despite shooting scenes for them or anything like that? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because you always hear these stories of, um, these Hollywood blockbuster movies that start without a finished script and they, and, and they have like 15, 20 writers and stuff. And you always think, well, why, why is that? Cause it's always for films like transformers or something where mm-hmm. you're like, well, how complicated could that be? You know? <laughs> and it's only when you're doing these things that you start understanding the, the processes of that. And, you know, in our film in general, because we were working on this sort of accelerated MonsterVerse timeline, you know, we had King of Monsters already going, and they already knew when we, you know, we already had a release date, you know, kind of planned before we even started shooting. So we're kind of backing into this release date and there's just certain elements in the script that, you know, you, you don't get a hundred percent right when you're shooting. Um, and, and, and you know, it, you know, that they're not done, you know, you know, mm-hmm. that they're, 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 there's something missing here. So, you, you know, like I remember when I got into post-production, the areas that we knew weren't totally fleshed out, um, didn't feel fleshed out. And, and so that was the biggest challenge was figuring that out. And then on top of that, we had to be very surgical. So we only had five days of pickups on this film, which is the least amount that, you know, especially any of the MonsterVerse films have ever done. Cause usually they do about 14 days or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we had five and we had to figure out how to change a couple of these like uh, plot points. Cause once we had the full picture in front of us, we could say, you know what, the vast majority of this works, but we need to figure out how to get a more efficient setup for the film. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we, we figured out a kind of a really smart plan and, you know, jumped in and did it. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was a surprise because, you know, we, we kind of knew what did and didn't work all the way along and we just didn't have, you know, um, the, a script that just totally nailed it yet. But mm-hmm. uh, once we got in post, it was pretty clear how to um, approach that from there. Was the five day thing because of COVID or because of the budget or why, why were you limited on the number of pickup days? I, I don't remember. I think it was a budget thing. I think that like, you know, I think that we were in a place where, you know, we just didn't want to overspend, you know, like mm-hmm. we, you know, like I think that there's so much waste on, on, on big Hollywood movies. And, and I think that the studio was at a place where they said, you know what, like, and I think actually that's why I was hired to do this movie because I've I've done tons of films over the years, all different budgets, never anything this big, but I've I have a I think a great reputation for always coming in on time and on budget, and I'm and I know how to think outside the box, and so I really brought that kind of indie mindset to it, mm-hmm. of thinking like, okay, I don't need you to give me everything. I just need to know what I need to fix, you know, right. and, and I'm going to figure out the best, most efficient way to do it. 
And, um, and, and so, yeah, it, it was that kind of thing where, you know, cause I, I think initially when we looked at, okay, here's the, if we wanted to really just fix everything in the film, what would it take? Maybe like nine days or something. And then we had to kind of say, okay, well, how do we whittle that down to five? And, you know, it just takes some thinking. I mean, I think it actually gives you a better experience because you're not just kind of like, we'll figure it out later. We'll just shoot a bunch of stuff and mm -hmm. do it in. You know, we had to really make real decisions. And sometimes I don't think that happens on big Hollywood movies. And, um, you know, but, but, but we're in an era where I think blockbusters are changing, where people are realizing that that kind of waste is, is, is not working. I think that movie budgets were getting bloated and kind of out of control over mm -hmm. the last decade. And I think there's a reckoning now where even though these are still hugely expensive films, you know, you can't just like, you know, take a, you know, a bucket of money and just toss it at something <laughs> anymore. You know, you have to actually, you know, have, have an idea of what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. I probably only have time for like one or two more questions. Um, I know you can't talk very much about your face-off sequel, but maybe you can just clarify one thing for me. Is it essential that both Cage and Travolta sign on for the movie to work in your mind? You know, I'm, I'm scared to say... Uh, yes or no to that because I don't, you know, because we haven't gotten into that phase of it yet that I don't want to scare anybody off. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but, you know, again, I will just kind of reiterate that this is um, a definitive uh, sequel to face off and that um, I wouldn't do the movie if at any point it felt like that the film wasn't going to be um uh, a real definitive sequel. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I All know right. that's not a cool answer, but no, 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 totally fine. Uh, read between the lines there, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry. My last question is, uh, just uh, for you personally, what aspect of the work you did on Godzilla versus Kong are you the most proud of? I think that, um, I think that it's really just being able to uh, bring out the emotions in, in in the monsters, you know, like that they're they're fully fleshed out, realized characters who have all these like kind of nonverbal communication moments. I, I think that that's the thing I'm most proud of because it's anybody can make a you know a big CGI thing look cool, you know, but like to really bring it to life in a way, um, that's the thing I'm most proud of. That's the thing that like kind of like makes me emotional when I watch the film, you know, because mm -hmm. I've never felt emotional necessarily when I've watched my own work. Um, uh, maybe like here and there, but like with this movie, it's like I get teary eyed at weird points and it's not where you'd expect. I mean, sometimes I get teary eyed when there's like the scene in the rain with Gian Kong because it's actually, you know, an emotional scene. So the very first few times that I saw that fully done with the music and the special effects in, it was like, oh, wow, this is really getting there. And I've seen a lot of people cry at that scene. But the, the one that like I get teary-eyed every time I watch it is uh, uh, the, the sequence where it's in some of the TV spots now where there's a shot where Godzilla and King Kong um, are roaring right in each other's faces. And it's mm. a very long moment in the film because they roar for a while. And every time I watch it, I'm just like, this is what it's all about. All the work, the three years that I put into this thing, um, all the heartache and, you know, and all the worry. 
it's all worth it for this one moment right here because this is what everybody's paying to see and it's just it's so cool <laughs> gotcha well thanks very much i appreciate your time thank you and congratulations on the movie thank you appreciate that and finally i would like to present my interview with max borenstein who is the only writer to work on every single one of legendary's monsterverse movies we spoke about his involvement with the franchise on each movie and how that's sort of changed a little bit uh, on a film-to-film basis how exactly he goes about writing big monster fight sequences how legendary is different from marvel studios and incorporating human drama in a movie where let's face it a lot of people probably just want to see giant monsters smashing stuff here is max bornstein i'd like to ask you a process question to actually kick things off here how do you write monster fights in your screenplays what is that process like for you uh well i mean yeah it's a it it's just like you'd write a, a dialogue scene honestly i think you know in this case uh, part of the process is devising uh, with the director and with the concept artists and with the whole creative team what the basic shape or venue of the, of the fight would be. So the idea of a, a fight between Godzilla and Kong on the water, for example, uh, in, on a fleet of ships. So that idea might exist or come into being. Uh, and then in terms of the ins and outs and the moment to moment, it's okay, well, who are our human characters? How are they gonna be in jeopardy? And how do we go beat by beat out of the frying pan into the fire for them and for Godzilla and Kong? Uh, you know, if it, were a, if it were a dialogue scene, you would be thinking about, you know, what the agenda of each character is and uh, every verbal, every line in, in a certain scene, an argument scene, for example, is like a dagger, right? And it's like, things are setting up, things are paying off, things are escalating. Uh, and it's very much the same way. I mean, it's not, they fight on the water, fill in the blanks. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's like suddenly there's a sound from the distance. Like, you know, there's a, you know, you hear the, you know, you hear a siren, heads turn, you see in the distance, you know, it's really you're collaboratively with everyone you're deciding what that is and then you're trying to dramatize moment to moment and then there's a feedback loop but really as a writer that's what you're doing you're generating you know all of it like the ship's going to invert and then everyone's you know and, and they just got they trapped themselves in but now the water is coming up and so he has to swim upside swim to this to the ceiling in order to pull the switch to you know whatever or they're going they're going to drop the depth jet charges and that's going to hopefully help Kong. And if Kong gets helped, then he can help them. And it's so it, all of those beats uh, are devised, written, and then ultimately executed. And, uh, and, you know, that's, to be honest, that's the majority of the writing on a movie like this is figuring out what those sequences are like, and how you're connecting and leapfrogging between them in, in the most elegant or efficient way. Uh, and, and, you know, trying to retain some semblance of logic between it but ultimately you're really trying to serve uh the spectacle and the emotion attached to that okay so i i spoke with um adam wingard and he told me a little bit about how terry rossio had formed a writer's room and that adam and terry ended up breaking a lot of this movie's story on note cards early on in the process I, i'm just curious about at what point did you enter the mix here mm -hmm. yeah so i you know i on I've been involved in this franchise from the beginning and like in each one in a different way. So with Godzilla, I kind of came in uh, at that phase with Gareth Edwards and we kind of just rebuilt it from the ground up. And then I was sort of on that movie 
more or less throughout production and post. Uh, on Kong Skull Island, I would, that started while Godzilla was in post, so I wrote the first couple drafts. Uh, and then when Jordan came in, uh, you know, I like I went off and did a television show, and then I came back before they went into production and sort of re like, you know, took some of the work that they had done in the interim and, and a lot of the work I had done and kind of reassembled it and, and was on that movie through production and then in post as well. Uh, and then Godzilla two, I wrote the first draft and then left uh, and, um, and was kind of in the mix and in the family, like staying abreast of what was going on, but it took off in a very different direction, uh, keeping some of the story elements uh, and then with Kong Skull Island, I mean, Kong, Godzilla versus Kong, it was at, like a little different than all of them where like I got to be the guy uh, who was sort of brought in closer to production. And it was like, here are the bones we have and this is working, this isn't working, you know, and being someone who knew the franchise and knew all of the people and likes them all and works well with them, was able to come in and help them sort of start to assemble those bones into something of the skeleton that there is, and then was able to sort of stay involved during production and then in post, because there's certain things that continue to evolve and shape during that. Uh, so that was, so those, th those guys kind of really uh, devised what was the, the basic kind of backbone of the story. And I was able to come in and more in a kind of script doctory way to kind of help massage and make that stuff work on this one. Adam was telling me a little bit about the, um, the post process and that uh, you guys only had five days of um, pickups, like reshoots on this movie and, and how you, you guys really had to be surgical in terms of, um, you know, narrowing down, making a lot of decisions in terms of picking exactly the moments that you needed to, to form that connective tissue. Were you a part of that process? You, you sort of alluded to the, the post there. Too. Yeah, you I was involved with that? yeah, I was involved. Uh, yeah, I was involved uh, in, in sort of like helping kind of watch cuts and decide sort of, or at least give my two cents in terms of like what the, what uh, might be helpful. And you know, there's a great creative team there that's uh, at Legendary that has sort of, you know, that I've worked with over the course of all these films that are very like hands-on. Uh, and they give each filmmaker uh, a lot of latitude, a lot more than, you know, other franchises, which I think is, a, you know, one of the cool distinctive things about the MonsterVerse has been that, you know, Marvel is like so curated in a brilliant way where they basically like, you know, it's all feels, there's a distinctive quality to like a Taika movie. You can sense it's him, but still it's very much all part of the Marvel universe. And, mm -hmm. and with this, it's, it's looser. It is part of the universe, but you know, Gareth's movie is very Gareth and Jordan's movie is very Jordan and Mike's movie is very Mike and Adam's movie is very Adam. And like they're given an opportunity to sort of like really just sort of play and have the keys essentially. And, and, you know, as a, as a writer, it's my sort of job in these movies to kind of come in and help them service that, you know, I was actually going to mention Marvel because I know that um, for a lot of their films, they use previs for these big scenes, even, you know, before the scripts are written sometimes. So I was just curious about like how it works in terms of the monster verse. Is that something where, you know, the, the studio has ideas for action scenes ahead of time, like big moments um, before, you know, th that kind I think of more, you know, to some extent, I think it's more the director and the, and the team, you know, the concept team and all that. Like, I think there's, you know, the studio is certainly supportive of it. It, but and and has its own ideas but it's not it's less like a kevin feige at marvel sort of coming in and saying 
because he knows that world and is the sort of showrunner in a sense of the Marvel universe. Uh, this is much more, I think legendary takes the role of patrons almost like where they're, you know, they're like the Medici's giving money to Leonardo and yeah. Michelangelo and saying, run with it, you know? Yeah. We want the last supper, but you do your thing. <laughs> That's more like that, you know? Gotcha. Um, are you, you know, obviously you've worked on all these movies. Are you this sort of go-to guy on set when it comes to mythology or questions about how things fit into the larger picture? Or if anybody's like, can Monarch do this? Or like, how? <laughs> well, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been, I've certainly been the, the guy who's been able to sort of uh, stick around and be helpful with that. Uh, and I think, you know, we, uh, it's been an evolving, gestating thing. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I was certainly, I think they, they use me sometimes for that. And like, they, they know it as well as anybody, uh, the guys at legendary, they're very hands-on and very involved in, uh, in stewarding that kind of stuff. But yeah, I've been, I've considered myself really fortunate to have been able to stay with the franchise in different ways over the course of it. It's kind of charted, you know, it's tracked with like a sort a whole section of my own career kind of going from like the young writer who was like, you know, wrote the first draft of that, you know, not the first draft, actually, there had been drafts, but like the first new draft with with the new director coming in and was like, desperate to stay involved. And at one point, I got replaced by a much more senior writer, but then I came back and it was like, you know, and, and so that was the Godzilla was like a different thing in that way. And then now I got to be the guy who got brought in to sort of like, you know, help be a stable hand toward the end, which was like, you know, it was fun. It was like being a senior in high school instead of a freshman, you know, That's but great. it's been, but I, but I've kind of matured and grown with this franchise in a lot of ways. And it's been, uh, it's kind of a, like a part of, part of my life in, in a great way. Um, I am a big Game of Thrones fan. Can you tell me about the Game of Thrones show that you were developing? What would that have been about? I, I don't know if I'm allowed. I wish I could. Uh, I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes and say too much about it. Uh, but, uh, but it was, it's something that hopefully, you know, maybe one day it'll see the light of day. I, you know, I'm doing another show for HBO right now and uh, I love those guys and, you know, I trust all the great things they're going to do with that franchise. And uh, so we'll see. I, yeah. It's something that I'm certainly really passionate about it uh, and I could, but I shouldn't talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, what is the latest on your Space Mountain movie? Are there any updates on that front? I remember us writing about that a little I, while back. Oh yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think like, you know, it, it, that was sort of a, a hopeful thing. And then it was years ago and it was before Disney bought Star Wars. And I think at the time anyway, it was, uh, you know, that was like, okay, well they, they seem to have like a, a space movie and a space franchise right now. So maybe, but actually there is, you know, there, they may, I, I've heard sort of rumblings that they may be kind of thinking about doing something that space. So I don't know. I've yeah. Been, now with Disney plus, it seems like there's, there's more room. Like they must, right. It's one of my favorite rides. It always has been. So <laughs> we'll see. All right. I think I probably have time for like one more question for you. So um, what is the, the challenge of incorporating human drama in a story like Godzilla versus Kong in which like arguably a significant number of people are only there to see giant monsters yeah. smash things? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. I like I I've kind of discovered it recently that, you know, I think, like I said, I kind of matured and grew along with this franchise and learned a thing or two. And I think, you know, one of the the challenge is, is scale, 
you know, in a superhero movie, your hero, your superheroes are also human beings who have families and problems and things, and that's why you can connect. Whereas here, your monsters are not human, and not only are they not human, but they're so big and out of our scale that they don't really interact with human beings in a plausible way very much at all. Like they crush the things we're in, but they're much more like a natural disaster. They're so much bigger than us. And so we invent ways of having people have agency, but some of those converge on cheesy, you know, it's like, oh, by controlling a monster that can fight them, right? Uh, it can work, but it, but it, but it tends to uh, detract or at least compete with the creatures themselves. And so what I've learned I think over the course of this, and it's been a learning, like a learning curve, is that I think the best human characters in these movies are supporting characters. Like if you treat them like supporting characters, like if you imagine Mission Impossible, Ethan Hunt is your star. There should be no human being in a Godzilla or a Kong movie who tries to compete with an Ethan Hunt. That's Kong or Godzilla, right? That's their role. They are the star of the movie. That said, if you look at Kong Skull Island, like one of my favorite characters in the franchise is what is the character John C. Riley played. And the reason why he's great is because he's not the star of the movie. He's a, he's a character role, right? Yep. He's a supporting role. And he, he plays, there's, a, there's humor, there's emotion, there's pathos. He's not trying to compete plot-wise with, with Kong. But what right. he's doing is he's, he's an investment for us He's not trying to be the leading man. He's being a supporting character and that and it's lovable, right? And I think we've done that in, in Godzilla versus Kong as well. There's a number of characters, even the ones who seem like Alex Skarsgård, who seems like a supporting, uh, like, a, uh, like a leading man. Right. He isn't really, he's quirky and he has his own agenda, but he's really kind of a supporting character. And I think by leaning into that in this film and leaning into the idea that Godzilla and Kong are the stars of the movie, it allows for uh, the human beings to not feel like they're annoying detractions or, or, or distractions from those other, from those stars. Instead, they get to, you know, they become fun supporting characters. Gotcha. All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you for speaking with me and, and congrats on the movie. And um, I also saw uh, your movie Worth at Sundance last oh. year and, and enjoyed that. And I can't wait for people to see that on Netflix too. There's some great performances, great work in that one too. So thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, we have, it's, we've amazingly like, partnered with Barack and Michelle Obama who are presenting it. And so that's like super exciting. Yeah, great stuff. All right, well, congrats, Max. Take care. Pleasure to meet you. You too. All right, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of these stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that. Tell your friends to spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.